a 2am wake-up call from a group of men standing over the bed, one saying, this is a robbery, and then a kidnapping that lasted almost 48 hours with ransom demands and a number of types of assault. Thankfully, the kidnapping victim, Denise Huskins, was found safe, dropped off by the kidnapper outside her family home hundreds of miles away. The Vallejo Police Department's press release on March 25, 2015, was that, quote, Today there is no evidence to support the claims that this was a stranger abduction or an abduction at all. Given the facts that have been presented thus far, this appears to be an orchestrated event and not a kidnapping. And, upon further investigation, we were not able to substantiate any of the things he was saying. This is Red Rum. Stories about the true victims of crime. Episode 63, Denise and Aaron. The Vallejo Police Department have received an emergency call from Aaron Quinn early that afternoon on March 23, 2015. He told officers that his girlfriend, Denise Huskins, had been kidnapped earlier that morning. He said he hadn't been sure what to do because the kidnappers had demanded a ransom and said that if he called police, Denise would be harmed. It didn't take long for two officers to arrive at Aaron's home address, where they asked if they could come into the house. Once inside, the two officers cleared the house to make sure that it was safe, and then they started assessing the scene for evidence. But, even at that early stage, things weren't adding up. One of the officers asked if Aaron had been drinking or if there'd been a party, or if he'd been on drugs. Aaron confirmed that he was on drugs. The kidnappers had forced him to drink some sort of sedation mixture and he'd kept passing out all morning. Soon after that, one of the officers asked Aaron to sign a waiver, granting them full access to the house, which he did. Whilst the other officer took Aaron down to the police station to take a formalised statement and run some blood tests. The officer asked Aaron how he and Denise knew each other, and if they'd been fighting. Aaron filled him in on the whole relationship and the whole of the previous night. He told them that in the summer of 2014, Denise had moved to this area of California as part of a residency in physical therapy. She'd chosen to go to this particular hospital because it was extremely well known for being one of the best, if not the best, program for physical therapists. During her time there, She spent some weekends socialising at parties and events, and she quickly became friendly with Aaron, who was also working as a physical therapist at the same hospital. It wasn't long before their friendship progressed, and the two of them started dating. Despite their initial connection, and the fact they seemed to be drawn together, there were some complications from the beginning. Aaron previously dated and been engaged to a woman he lived with, For the purposes of this episode, I'll be referring to her with the pseudonym she's been given in most of the source material, Jennifer Jones. The couple had broken up because she cheated on him with a police officer, but the relationship was on and off over the the following weeks and months, and there was some overlap, especially in terms of Aaron and Jennifer messaging about getting back together. Ultimately, although ultimately Aaron had decided that he didn't want to be with Jennifer, he realised he was in love with Denise. Aaron told Denise that he was sorry and that he wanted to be with her and the relationship he had with his ex was a reminder of his past and not what he wanted. Although Aaron hadn't intended to move on so quickly, when he'd met Denise, he knew the attraction was more than just physical. The two would spend hours talking 
and the first few days of unattached bliss turned into a deeper, more real connection than either of them could have imagined. Denise was the person Aaron wanted to spend the rest of his life with, and he felt so stupid for what he'd done for hurting her. Denise was falling in love with Aaron. In fact, she was probably already in love with him, and leaving him, despite being a cleaner choice, didn't feel like an option for her. One warm, breezy Sunday evening, Denise got in her car and made her way towards Aaron. Towards Aaron's. They decided to have a conversation about how to progress things. Denise was hurting, but she loved him, and he'd reassured her that it was over with his ex, Jennifer. He wanted to be with Denise and thought they should at least talk so that they could figure out where they both stood. Denise agreed, and as she arrived at his house early that evening, she saw the door open. Aaron invited her in and they both went into his kitchen. The rest of the evening was emotional. Aaron told Denise he'd gotten rid of everything that belonged to his ex and the house they'd once shared was now his home. He was also continuing with therapy and was feeling in a solid place to do whatever it took to show Denise that he was serious about her. The pair spoke all night and eventually reconciled. Aaron meant it when he said that he wanted to be with Denise and he'd spend the rest of his life proving that to her. The couple settled into bed that night, both feeling as though a weight had been lifted. They both knew where they stood, they were both on the same page, and their future looked bright. Denise and Aaron fell quickly into a deep sleep, only interrupted by a sound outside. Perhaps it was their local stray cat, or a raccoon in the area known to knock over the outside bins every now and then. Either way, it didn't worry them. Until, minutes later, maybe longer, a deep voice close to Aaron's side of the bed, quote, wake up, this is a robbery. The deep voice then demanded that they lie face down and that it wasn't just him in the room, there were a few of them, but they weren't here to hurt anyone. The man who demanded they lie face down then told Denise to use the prearranged zip ties to tie Aaron up, first his hands behind his back, then his feet. After that, he directed Denise to the bedroom walk-in closet and told her to lie face down. She did as she was told and then she felt one of the men zip tie her hands together and then her feet. Moments later, Aaron flopped onto the floor beside her, still tied up. Then. Aaron said that swimming goggles, patched up with thick tape so there was no way of seeing anything, were placed over both his and Denise's eyes. After that, Denise felt earphones being placed into her ears and then the familiar sound of instrumental yoga-type music. After a few moments, a pre-recorded voice started, it was slightly altered and it spoke, quote, Stay calm, we are not here to hurt you. This is not your fault. We are here purely for financial reasons. This will be over soon. A medical professional will be in shortly to check your vitals. You will be given a mixture of NyQuil and diazepam. If you don't take it orally, it will be injected intravenously. Then, one of the men returned and took both Aaron and Denise's blood pressure before asking if they had any allergies or medication he needed to know about. The officers listening to Aaron's story saw this as their first major red flag. The kidnappers were showing a huge level of care for a group of people who were threatening and potentially violent. 
and who had spent the last five minutes terrifying the couple and then tying them up. The main kidnapper forced Aaron to drink the sedative, then he forced Denise to do the same. Aaron said it became clear pretty early on that the men in their bedroom knew them. Perhaps not to speak to, but the man who had spoken had used Aaron's name and told him he knew the street Aaron had grown up on and the kidnappers seemed to know their way around the house. Then, another recording was played on the headphones, this time stating that they'd soon be asked for their bank details and passwords. Then, a third recording. The recorded voice stated, if there's any doubt that they're telling the truth, their partner will be punished by means of an electric shock and cuts to their face. One of the men then took Denise out of the room. She was still tied up, both hands and feet, so she couldn't walk. The man had to pick her up and carry her downstairs to place her on the sofa. Then, the man made his way into the room where they were holding Aaron and told him there had been a mistake. All of this was meant for Jennifer Jones, not Denise. After more discussion between the men, one of them returned to the room where Aaron was being held. Aaron said the man told him they were going to take Denise for 48 hours and then he would need to pay $15,000 to get her back. He then placed headphones over Aaron's ears and again, the voice started speaking. Aaron, we are going to take Jennifer for a 48-hour period. You will pay the amount provided by your contact to secure Jennifer's return. You may be wondering why this is happening to you. It may help to learn about our organisation. We are a black market group hired to retrieve payments for personal and financial debts. Our group has secured payments across the country. This will be your burden to bear. So do not attempt to go to the police. We will always be watching you and your family. In one instance, a subject moved across the country in belief we would not find her. Years later, we placed a pie on her doorstep confirming to her that we know her location. You will be moved to your downstairs living room. A camera has been installed to monitor your movements. The camera's serial number has been filed off and authorities will not be able to trace it. Our cameras are highly sophisticated and work at high temperatures. Foolishly, one subject turned up the heat in his home in an attempt to short-circuit our cameras. He was sadly mistaken. Any attempt to change the temperature will result in harm to Jennifer. The blinds will be shut and there will be markings that you must stay inside. If you do not follow our instructions, we will harm Jennifer. Hidden cameras have been installed throughout the house, except for your downstairs bathroom. You're allowed to use the bathroom for short periods. If a neighbour or family member makes contact, you must make an excuse that does not raise suspicion. Any attempt to call authorities will result in harm to Jennifer. We will be watching you at the bank. If you attempt to alert the bank teller, we will kill Jennifer. Waiting will be the hardest part. You should entertain yourself by reading. Stay strong for Jennifer and your family. Aaron said that he was then taken downstairs and given a portable phone charger. He was told to keep his phone charged at all times. He was then instructed on what he should do next. In the morning, he could cut himself free from the ties. A pair of scissors was left on the kitchen counter for him. Afterwards, he'd have to call into work and tell them that he was sick. Then he'd text Denise's manager from her phone, stating that she was dealing with a family emergency and wouldn't be in for the entire week. He was also informed that cameras had been set up all over the house and he would be watched continuously. He could see one camera in the corner of the room and there was red tape that blocked the exits outside and the stairs. 
The man who'd been doing all the talking then said they were going to take his laptop, but they'd left some books out for him to read while he waited for the time he needed to call his work. Denise was then carried out of the house and into the boot of Aaron's car. The man placed a duvet from the house in the boot of the car and laid Denise on top of it. He then gave her another blanket that came from inside the house and Aaron heard the boot trunk close. Aaron said he tried to stay awake after that, but even with the adrenaline pumping, the sedation that he'd been forced to drink earlier was taking a toll and at around 7am, he woke up from the drug-induced sleep. He managed to get to the kitchen counter and take off his ties. Then he grabbed his phone and called in sick. Next, he grabbed Denise's phone and texted in about the family emergency. Then he said that the sedatives took hold again and before he knew it, it was 11.20am. After waking up this time, he looked around. All of the blinds had red tape over them, ensuring they stayed shut. Then Aaron's phone buzzed. A text message popped up from 111.freetext.com, quote, Acknowledge that you received this message to the email provided. Aaron had been given an email address to communicate with earlier. He replied, asking if he should communicate through email or text. After a few more messages discussing how best to communicate, a message popped up in Aaron's emails. We will proceed with this address. Denise is well. We have a short recorded message, so stating that I will format and send at some point. The message went on to ask Aaron to get a cash advance from his bank card, adding, the drop would happen tomorrow night or early Wednesday morning, with release to follow quickly, provided all instructions are followed. Is this acceptable? Further instructions came, telling him to call the bank to check he could take that amount of cash out. It also said that he should say he needs it to buy a ski boat. Aaron did call the bank and they informed him that the maximum he could have as a cash advance would be $3,520. That was nowhere near the $15,000 he needed to get Denise back. He messaged back to tell the kidnappers the low amount, but with no response and the first few minutes turning into 10 and then 20 and then half an hour, Aaron began to panic. He didn't know what to do, but he realised in that moment that the cameras filming him might not be working after all. The beeping noise that had started when they'd first been set up was still going on now, something the kidnapper said would stop happening once they were fully working. He'd also been prompted to reply to the initial message after he'd already sent an email, something that anyone watching on the cameras would have seen. It was a potential life or death decision, but Aaron was considering calling his brother, Ethan, an FBI agent. He would know exactly what to do. Aaron did call, and his brother told him he needed to call 911, but Aaron was scared. They would kill Denise if he did that. Ethan assured him that all kidnappers said that, but they needed the police in this situation and there was nothing else for it. And that's when Aaron had dialed 911. The police officers had come to his house. One officer unplugged the camera that was in the corner of the living room and then they'd started questioning Aaron. But the questions seemed odd and non-urgent to the situation. And now he was sat in the police department giving them his statement. Photos were taken of his arms, hands and ankles, as well as a saliva swab sample. Then the officer asked for all of his clothes for forensics. Aaron agreed, but this meant that he had to wear what he was given, a prison uniform. The officer apologised, stating that was all they had. 
The next few hours were filled with detailed questioning, going through that entire night bit by bit. And then a couple of hours after that, a new detective came inside the interrogation room. This new detective, Matt Mustard, asked Aaron to tell him in his own words exactly what had happened. Aaron went over the events of the previous night again in as much detail as he could, hoping they'd pick up on something new. But after he'd finished telling the detective, the man stared at him. He told Aaron he didn't believe him. His story was far too ridiculous to be the truth. He went on to tell Aaron that since he'd been at the station, no one had tried to contact him demanding the money. No one had tried to negotiate a price or a further drop-off with him. And that was highly suspicious. The detective noted that Aaron didn't have a record. Whatever happened between him and Denise last night wasn't a normal situation. He said it was probably just a reaction and none of it was planned. The detective just needed to know the truth. But Aaron was determined and didn't back down. None of this questioning was helping them find Denise. The detective continued, saying he'd spoken to some of Denise's friends and they told him that Denise was heartbroken by what she'd discovered about Aaron still being in contact with his ex. The conversation the couple had last night was obviously a hard one and that's what had led to her disappearance and, the detective now assumed, the end of Denise's life. Aaron pleaded his innocence and that Denise was still alive. She had to be. But the detective didn't believe him. That's when the detective revealed that what was missing from the house was suspicious. A duvet and a blanket. He continued, saying that the only reason those would be the only things missing were if they were used to transport a body. The detective convinced Aaron that the best thing to do would be to take a polygraph. But Aaron having a brother in the FBI knew how unreliable they were and that they were inadmissible in court. Still, if it meant that they'd stop harassing him about the events and try to find out what had really happened to Denise and where she was at now, then he would do it. He sat down with the polygraph expert and prepared himself. He failed. The polygraph expert said it was clear that Aaron had been lying and he tried to speak sense with him, suggesting an accident had happened and that he knew Aaron was scared, but now he needed to confess the truth. After that, Aaron finally got a lawyer who briefed him on giving another DNA sample. He changed into normal clothes and finally was allowed to leave the police station. The lawyer told Aaron's family, quote, the Vallejo police are the most incompetent, corrupt police force around here and they will do everything they can to railroad this kid. Hours later, police informed Aaron that they'd received a proof of life video from Denise and wanted him to come back to the station to see it. When he returned, he was also introduced to the hostage negotiator. The agent told Aaron that he believed, based on all the information they'd gotten from himself and police reports, that the kidnappers had some kind of military or police training background. Then, Aaron's phone was handed back to him, after hours and hours of not having access to it. Amongst hundreds of emails, text and voicemails from concerned friends, family and the media, an email from the kidnappers over 24 hours ago had been received and opened, presumably by the police. Quote, We will call you at about 9pm on your mobile phone. Your liaison will be the same contact as during the acquisition phase. Please verify that you have received this message. Another timestamp a little while later asked to confirm he got the email. 
The police had had his phone and done nothing to respond or update Aaron with what was happening. Meanwhile, Denise's family had been informed and her dad decided to be the face of the family whilst appealing for information. He spoke of his disbelief that this could be happening and how it didn't make any sense. His Good Morning America interview aired where he is seen begging the kidnappers to release Denise and not to hurt her. The police showed Aaron the proof of life video. Denise was sat looking towards the camera speaking. She said her name, stated the date and spoke about a news event that had just happened to prove that the video was recent. She also said that she was fine. Alongside the proof of life video, an email came through from the kidnappers. Quote, As stated, Denise will be returned safely tomorrow. We will send a link to her location after she has been dropped off. She will be in good health and safe while she waits. Any advance on us or our associates will create a dangerous situation for Denise. Wait until she is recovered and then proceed how you will. We will be ready. Alongside all of this, the police have been searching Aaron's home and the surrounding areas, including the nearby swamp. The police team was fully equipped with boats out in the swamps and a full canine unit. Police located Aaron's car parked about half a mile away in a car park. The detective Matt Mustard, who had been dealing with the disappearance, didn't believe the version of events he'd heard from Aaron. He said it was, quote, implausible that unknown persons wearing scuba gear would break into the home through unknown means in the middle of the night with headphones, soothing music and pre-recorded instructions, that they would drug their victims and check their blood pressure, that they would bring Mr. Quinn downstairs with blankets and books for the night and that they would set up a fake camera, fooling a smart, educated man like Mr. Quinn, and that after going to such elaborate lengths, they would demand such a small ransom. Everything the officers and many of the news reporters and public had believed was thrown out around 48 hours after the kidnapping had taken place. A woman, one of Denise's dad's neighbours, had heard a continuous knocking coming from the apartment nearby hers. She opened up her door and looked out. There, standing not far from her front door, was Denise Huskins. The neighbour had mistaken her for Mike's other daughter at first, but when Denise said who she was, the neighbour immediately ushered her inside and asked how she could help. What could she possibly do to make sure she was okay, or as okay as she could be, given the undoubtedly horrific circumstances of the last 48 hours? She immediately called the police and told them that the victim of the Vallejo kidnapping, Denise Huskins, had just turned up outside her apartment and she needed police officers to come right now. Once the officers arrived, they asked Denise for her account of what had happened over the last 48 hours. Despite being worried what the kidnappers might do if they found out, Denise said it was important to try and catch the people who did this. She explained the initial kidnapping, the one kidnapper that seemed to be in charge of her, the ties they used to bind their hands and feet, the headphones that play pre-recorded messages demanding personal details like bank passwords and pins, the goggles used as blindfolds, the many, many sedatives, and being taken out of the house and forced into the boot of Aaron's car. She told them that the man had started up Aaron's car and sped off away from the house. A little while later, she was transferred from that boot to another and a new journey began. Hours later, after many sedative-induced hours sleeping and many, many miles travelled, 
Denise woke up to the man opening the boot. He pulled her out and the two of them stumbled headfirst towards the ground. After that, the man dragged her towards the area in front of them. Once there, the man pulled Denise into the garage and placed the duvet from the boot over her. After a little while, the man made his way back over to Denise and used a knife to cut the ties off of her. Still blindfolded, he took her into the bathroom and said she could use it to shower. He told her there was a window but he'd covered it up and he'd know if she tried to uncover it. And then there would be consequences. After Denise had showered, she was led into the next room. This one had a bed and the man informed Denise that this is where she'd be staying. Her glasses were on the counter and there was food and water if she needed anything. He was going to have to leave for a few hours, but a man called Jay was going to look over her. He added that she shouldn't speak to Jay and that he would be back soon. Later on, the man who she'd come to know as the main kidnapper came back into the room. He told her that as punishment to him for getting the intel incorrect on who they were kidnapping, he would have to rape her. He'd do this and record it so that they could use it against her if she ever spoke out about what had happened. And they could use it against him if he didn't stay on track or if he made any more mistakes. He told Denise he'd just got engaged and the tape would destroy his relationship if it got out. That's why he had chosen to do it. The man went on to say that when he'd spoken to Aaron back at the house, he could tell he was a good guy and that none of this should be happening to either of them. He went on to admit that he had tried to live a normal life out of trouble, but he suffered PTSD and insomnia brought on by being in the military, and this is the only kind of work he could really do with the skills he'd learnt in his military training. After that, Denise attempted to connect with the man, trying to make herself more of a human to him than an object. The man opened up himself, telling her about all of his difficulties in dealing with the aftermath of having been in the military. After that, he told her that he needed to prepare himself and calm his nerves by having some wine. Moments later, he told her he wouldn't hurt her and he didn't want to make it any worse for her. He added that the camera was set up facing the bed they were both lying on and then he raped her. After that, the man led Denise back to the bathroom and let her shower. He said she could take the blindfold off when she was alone, too, but she must put it back on before he came back in the room every single time. When Denise did come back into the room, he forced her to drink a vial of sedatives and gave her some food. Denise drifted in and out of a sedative-induced sleep. The next thing she knew, the kidnapper was back. He told her that Aaron had stopped communicating with them. The man added one of two things had happened. Either Aaron had decided to stop receiving their calls, or he'd gone to the police. He went on to say that he wouldn't actually be worried if Aaron had gone to the police, because it would be good media coverage for his group. Denise was worried. She asked the man that now Aaron had potentially gone to the police, would they kill her? The man told her no, that wouldn't happen. Even if the whole rest of the group decided they needed to kill her, he wouldn't let that happen. He had an entire escape plan for him and his family. If that happened, he would let her go alive no matter what. He added that he wasn't privy to all the information. He only knew certain things and he just worked for them. He didn't even know who had hired them. Because he was involved directly with the captive, it would be too much of a risk for him to know who had hired them. The man went on to ask Denise why she thought Jennifer was targeted. 
What did they want from her? Was her family wealthy? What possible reason would this be done to her? Denise said she didn't know, she didn't know a whole lot about Jennifer, but perhaps it was something to do with her ex-husband and the wealth his family had, or something to do with the man she cheated on Aaron with and the fact he was a police officer. The man perked up at that and agreed that was probably it. After that, he again raped her, saying that the first video he took didn't meet the requirements of his group. Later on that day, the man returned and told Denise that Aaron had indeed gone to the police and that meant he wouldn't be able to release her in Vallejo. There would be too many people, too much police presence around. Then he told her he'd have to drop her off elsewhere and he had chosen Northern California, Huntington Beach, where her parents were based. They left at 2am the following morning and after hours of driving, sedated sleep and more driving, the man woke Denise up and told her they'd arrived. By this point, he'd changed the blindfold goggles for a seemingly more natural pair of sunglasses and her eyes had been taped over so that she couldn't open them to see anything. The man said Denise should count slowly up to 10 and then she could take the tape off of her eyes. He added that they'd be recording her the whole time. He helped Denise out of the car and then got back in and as soon as she heard that car drive away, she took off the sunglasses she'd been made to wear, peeled the tape from her eyes and looked around. She was back in Huntington Beach, where both her mum's house and her dad's apartment were located. It wasn't made apparent to Denise right away, but the officers questioning her were suspicious. For one thing, Denise had been kidnapped with her bags, an overnight bag, some work things and her purse, and she was dropped off outside her family home with all of these intact. Why would the kidnappers release Denise 48 hours after they took her when no ransom money had been paid? The officer's voice recorded the initial interviews where Denise explained what had happened, but then she asked about talking with a lawyer. One of the police officers replied that the detectives would be able to help her out with that later. After that, the officer tried to get more details of the attack and the kidnappers. Denise explained that she'd been blindfolded pretty much the entire time, so she didn't know exactly what they looked like. She didn't have much to do with the main man's associates, who she said had been referred to as T, J and L. They occasionally came in to check on her, but she pretended to be asleep, so she never really had any dealings with them. As for the main man she interacted with, she told officers she had managed to slightly peek at him one time and it looked like he had brown, maybe slightly reddy hair, and that he was white. The officer asked how she'd coped. She seemed calm now, he said. She must be so strong. Denise replied that she had to be. She kept thinking that when the 48 hours were up, she might be set free, but more likely, they could kill her. She had to force herself to remain calm. She had to do everything they asked. She had to play their games so they didn't have any further reason to hurt her. She said she would have changed how she was behaving if they didn't release her after those first 48 hours. Then she would change tact and come up with a plan B. But for now, she would play their game and wouldn't give them any trouble. The officer went on to say that the detectives would need to talk to Denise and she asked that if they needed to do that right now, could she at least speak to her mum and dad first? She was scared. The officer asked why she was scared and she said that she thought there was a chance this might happen to her again if she spoke too much. The kidnappers had said not to talk, 
to be careful of what she said. She broke down in front of them, adding that she understood they had to do their job by asking all of these questions, but she thought it was useless and that they probably wouldn't catch anybody anyway. She told them that, quote, It's weird because all things considered, they treated me really nicely. Obviously being kidnapped and held against my will is not anywhere nice, but I was always asked about my comfort level, thirst, hunger, all of that. And when I went to the bathroom, they gave me privacy. He let me shower. A while later, forensics took evidence from Denise. They took photos of her wrists and her eyes where the goggle blindfold had made a mark. After Denise had left the police station, the detective Matt Mustard had called her lawyer cousin Nick, who relayed to her that the detective had offered Denise immunity. When she asked what that meant, Nick admitted that in this context he didn't really know, but the same deal was being offered to Aaron and whoever took it first would get it. The police simply didn't believe Denise. Detective Matt Mustard said that the story he heard was far-fetched and a hoax on both sides. He added that making a false police report could lead to years in prison and the immunity offer would avoid that. Denise had then done another interview with the FBI agent, after which the agent told her that there were a lot of inconsistencies in her story and, again, said that lying to a federal agent is a federal crime. The FBI agent was 99% sure she was lying and told Denise's lawyer he should watch the film Gone Girl to help get an understanding of what was going on. For those of you who don't know the film or book, ultimately, Gone Girl is about a young woman who fakes her own kidnapping and murder and sets up her husband. And then, during one interrogation period when Denise was talking to police, detectives received an email from a newspaper it had come in to them directly from people claiming to be the kidnappers. It corroborated much of what Denise had said as the version of events that happened over those 48 hours. One line of the email threatened the police department if they didn't publicly take back their accusation of both Denise and Aaron. A second email came in to the same reporter, which was then forwarded on to the police. This one was 19 pages long and outlined the crimes in detail, that the group had committed before kidnapping Denise. The emails had information in them no one but the kidnappers would know and claimed responsibility as a group of professionals, not giving too specific information but keeping it realistic and undoubtedly true. That is, if it had come from the kidnappers. It was immediately brought up that it was an incredible coincidence that the kidnappers had emailed to jump to Denise's defence. Why would they do that? What reason did they have to possibly help defend Denise? They were the supposed kidnappers, after all. The people who just days earlier had kidnapped her and threatened absolute violence. The email also stated that the kidnappers were a group of professional thieves who would often steal cars and burgled houses, but eventually moved on to taking money for more personal crimes, including kidnapping for ransom. It went on to state that there were three people who carried out the kidnapping that night, one to deal with Aaron and Denise, another who found personal information about them, including going through their phones and laptops, and the third to set up the cameras in the house. As the investigation into the kidnapping progressed, Aaron and Denise were eventually reunited. When Aaron returned to his house after being reunited with Denise, he came home to find mountains of evidence still inside and around his home. 
The police had definitely been in and searched it. That was evident from the black fingerprint dust peppered throughout the house and his belongings being strewn all about the place. A lot of his things were gone, items like his games console and other bits, but what struck Aaron as odd and ultimately infuriating were the things that had been left behind. These included the portable phone charger that the kidnappers had left for Aaron, the same one he told police about four different times. He also saw that the patio screen that was clearly removed to allow access had been dumped just a few metres away from the house, and as well as that, a piece of thick wire that had been used to tamper with the door lock was still there, clear evidence that again hadn't been collected by the investigators. It was clear to Denise and Aaron that the Vallejo Police Department wasn't interested in helping them, and over the following few weeks did very little to assure them that they were looking for the people who had done this. However, on the 8th of June, just over two months after the kidnapping, police officer Misty Karasu was briefed on a masked man who had broken into the home of an elderly couple in Dublin, California. The man had fled partway through the robbery as police arrived, and in doing so, left behind a number of items including his cell phone. The cell phone led officers to an address in South Lake Tahoe where Misty executed a search warrant. Inside, she found a man, Matthew Muller. He was 38 years old and an ex-Marine. He was also a disbarred immigration lawyer who had studied at Harvard. Matthew had been linked to a number of other crimes in and outside the area. On searching the man's home and vehicle, Misty found a huge amount of evidence that linked him to the Dublin robbery, as well as more evidence that seemed to be from other crimes. In his car, Misty found Nerf guns that had been painted black and had laser pointers taped onto them, probably to give the illusion of being real. Alongside these, she found a pair of swimming goggles that had black tape over the lenses and stuck to one piece of tape was a long blonde hair. Matthew Muller had used a drone to film through Denise and Aaron's windows when they'd left the blinds open on the night of the kidnapping and that footage was recovered at his home, as well as footage of the rapes. At first, Matthew tried to plead an insanity defence, including having mental illnesses such as bipolar disorder, paranoia and psychosis, but when it became clear that there was no medical reasoning or documentation to support this, his defence lawyer decided they should go for a plea deal. The plea deal would mean that Matthew pleaded guilty to kidnapping and prosecution would ask for no more than a 40-year sentence. Ultimately, the police didn't pursue any of Matthew's accomplices. They stated that it was likely Matthew orchestrated the entire thing on his own and only made it seem like there were more people involved, probably to reduce the chance of him getting caught. But Denise and Aaron knew that wasn't true. There were other people involved and they now roam the streets and could potentially harm other people. Matthew's lawyer told the press that he didn't have accomplices and was actually using various recordings during the kidnapping to make it sound like there were other people there. Matthew was sentenced to 40 years in prison. After that, it was Denise and Aaron's duty, they felt, to build up their case against the police department. In that case, the judge said, quote, a reasonable jury could find that the Vallejo PD engaged in conduct that was extreme and dangerous. 
This was followed by a mediation hearing where the Vallejo PD agreed on a $2.5 million settlement. But with that being settled out of court, they didn't have a trial or officially admit any wrongdoing or specifics. It came out that during the kidnapping, the Vallejo Police Department had had access to the kidnapper's phone records that had come from him contacting Aaron's phone whilst Aaron was at the police station. Not only had the police placed Aaron's phone on aeroplane mode to stop the calls coming in, potentially putting Denise in even more danger, but the phone records actually placed the phone at Matthew Muller's address. They had the location of where Denise was being held 24 hours into her kidnapping and 24 hours before she was released. Not only could they have saved her hours earlier, they also could have stopped the Dublin home invasion that happened weeks after. The Vallejo Police Department have never made a statement saying why they didn't investigate this line of inquiry thoroughly or, at the time, at all. <laughs> 